You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. this month's episode of the Archaeology and Ale podcast. This month's episode is titled Summer of Archaeology, Medieval Brockhampton and is presented by our guest speaker, archaeologist Chris Atkinson. For those of you new to our podcast, Archaeology and Ale is a free monthly talk held upstairs at the Red Deer Pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield. The talks are provided by Archaeology in the City, an outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Archaeology Department. Um, yes, yeah, so we're talking about that, the Summer of Archaeology. It's uh, a project um, funded by uh, the Lottery Fund, and it's a project established by the National Trust. And I was fortunate enough with my, my colleague as a job share, we were taken on as the project archaeologists um, to basically well, run the Summer of Archaeology at a, a place called Lower Brockhampton uh, in the county of Herefordshire. So if we go to the next slide. Okay, a little bit of location and stuff. So if you're not sure on where Herefordshire is, is in regards to the rest of the UK, well, it's that red dot down there. And Bromyard, which is this town down here, is within the northeast kind of corner of the, of the county with the site of interest, uh, Lower Brockhampton here. And to give you an idea of what this Lower Brockhampton is all about, you've got a lovely 15th century moated house site there with a 16th century gatehouse and right next door to it, so just the other side that way, is the 13th century um, ruined chapel itself. So it's a, you know, it's a really picturesque uh, site. Great, looks great on postcards, calendars, all that sort of stuff. National Trust love it. But, uh, and when we got there, they've already got this well-established history. Um, uh, or at least what the story was, as it says there. And Brockhampton, it's an Anglo-Saxon name, uh, kind of meaning something like a settlement next to the brook or population and inhabitants next to the brook. And so therefore, we have an Anglo-Saxon origins to the site, probably a village, something like that. I also learned that it's located on a pilgrim's way between... Um, the cathedral at Durham and at uh, St. David's, and that Anglo-Saxon armies on their march into Wales would stop off at the chapel at Lower Brockhampton and do their little bit, have a little, you know, whatever, and go on and knock a few Welshmen on the head. Also learn that around the chapel itself, there's about 50 odd graves, and many of these were taken out during the late 1600s. Um, when the estate was kind of in change, the family were moving elsewhere. The site is also an early moated site. You have, as you saw, the house there with a moat going around it. Well, the, the previous county archaeologists, various surveys in the past have identified a ditch, which we'll come to look at a little bit later, which has been interpreted as an earlier moat around this house, which would make it quite a 
quite an interesting, important site indeed. We have additional fish ponds and bits and bobs around the area. Now the chapel itself is believed to have been renovated during the 15th century when the uh, Dumbleton family took over the estate. They claimed it from the Brockhamptons and they kind of looked at it and went, yeah, it needs a bit of work. What we'll do is add the font, add the windows to the chapel, uh, or at least the current windows that are there in the chapel, and also build the existing um, house that you saw on the previous photo on, on the site. So presumably that house is located on an earlier hall manor of such. Oh, a bit about the gatehouse there as well. That's a little later after the house coming about 100 years later when the estate had passed into the Harrington family. And they were looking not only to, well, yeah, do that, but improve the grounds around the area. But on becoming or on um, becoming part of the Dumbleton estate, the chapel is also thought uh, and is believed to have become a private chapel for the family. Yeah, and the final thing there is the whole site reverted to a farm, working farm, uh, by about 1780 when the later Barnaby family took over the estate again in the, the 1600s and they had a grander manor built on the side of a hill about a mile away from Lower Brockhampton because it was well, well out of date and not to social standing by then. So, but as a result of the, the Barnaby family moving, the house gradually went into decline, um, you know, falling to bits basically, until the National Trust got their hands on it in uh, 1948. And this is one of the earliest um, plans of Lower Brockhampton, uh, 1737 uh, estate map. And so that kind of brown splodge in the middle there is basically the, uh, the house itself, and presumably this little kink coming off the side is the chapel but they've kind of somehow merged it all and the moat is represented by this green line here with some form of drain boundary coming off it towards a a brook uh, sorry a spring line that starts here and runs off down slope and this is a much better plan of it from the 1829 survey when it was within the hands of the Barnaby family they were getting ready to move from here to go to their new house on top of the hill with the new chapel as well. And so that dashed bit there is our chapel site. There's obviously the house, nice moat going around, potentially a duck pond here, fish pond here, and a splattering of gardens around the area highlighted as well. So it's one of our you know, best earliest kind of visual representations of, of, of the area in any great detail. So that's what we kind of understand of approaching the project from the very beginning. That's what we were faced with. That was the detail to hand. And so we thought, right, how are we going to improve this project? What are we going to do? Number one, find out whether any of that information is correct. So um, enhance our understanding of Lower Brockhampton. And this is kind of delving into the local records, the archives, what the National Trust had, what the, the local historic environment record and what Hereford Records Office had, as well as the cathedral archives in Hereford. But the core principle of the project was, again, its community. It's a, a real good chance to get the community, not just visitors 
of the National Trust at Brockhampton to get involved, but to get the local community, the local history society, the Bromyard and District Local History Society, and also great for the users of Herefordshire Mind and Echo. Um, so mental health and physical, physical disability charities. Both organisations, or in fact Herefordshire Mind, I should say, I've had the privilege with to work with in the past, um, actually on the same National Trust estate uh, back in 2011. And um, it's, just, it's just great for well-being, health, being outdoors, socialising, all that in, within a, you know, what's archaeology? It's not, it's not that pressured, is it? You know, I certainly don't shout at people anyway. But, uh, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, very just social atmosphere. It's fantastic. And the end result of involving them, oh, and I should also mention that we, we had involved um, a filming company, but they're a fantastic organisation. <laughs> Uh, they really are. Shape. Yeah, Media Ship. There we go. There we go. Media Ship, the organisation. And um, they're fantastic because they, they work with um, young homeless people um, struggling in life. And they're teaching them the skills in, well, media, filming, giving them skills for the future, as well as providing them housing and support as well so it was a great project for bringing together well really all aspects of the the community and as the project developed we were bringing in uh students from the local heritage sixth form college that were going through their archaeology studies as well as a levels just brilliant uh the end result why were we doing it well to improve the interpretation on the site with media ship there they were producing a 10 minute video that would promote the project the history of the, um, the Lower Brockhampton for the future as well, um, a new guidebook, and also trying to update the kind of entrenched National Trust volunteers that were, you know, they do a sterling job giving guided tours around the area, but it's quite an interesting experience trying to drag them away from what they've told for the last 10 years or so and get them to embrace a new history. So. That was the aim of this, this project, really. So here we go. First things first, how can we improve the history? And we had um, uh, four or five volunteers really keen to get to grips with this. And in fact, they didn't need much prodding at all. Uh, I turned up the one day at work and there was a pile of paper from the, <laughs> the cathedral archives just there on my desk. I was like, where's that come from? You know, someone went, oh, it's Angela Williams. She's kind of, oh you know, bargain. So I, very, <laughs> I didn't really need to do an awful lot in regards to researching the history of the site. So we mentioned before Anglo-Saxon origins by name. Uh, there's obviously a village there. It's on a pilgrim's way, all these sort of things. Well, the pilgrim's way, we can't prove that. That's somehow that's got into the literature somewhere and stuck. Brockhampton, they've seen the name Brockhampton and realized you can interpret that as Anglo-Saxon, as meaning settlement next to the brook. It's stuck, therefore, Lower Brockhampton must have a village of it. Well, we couldn't prove that through the record either, because as we went through, we've got the uh, Red Book of the Exchequer recording in 1166 there, that there's this 
single character, a knight, Bernardus of Brockhampton, or de Bro Brockhampton, um, providing a service to the manor of Bromyard and the bishop, along with about seven, seven other knights. And that's it. That's the record. So he's of Brockhampton, but, you know, where's that? It could, there's another Brockhampton in Herefordshire near Ross-on-Wye. And there's another one in Gloucester, and it's the one in Gloucester that we believe this bloke's come from. So he's basically potentially come up, arrived in the area. Our next record is 1283, the bishop's, uh, bishop, of Swa bishop Swinefeld's um, accounts. Um, 1283, recording the purchase of the land, basically transferring of the land of Richard of Brockhampton, which is presumably a descendant of Bernardus, uh, along with the advowson of the chapel to the next family to take over the Furches. Careful how you say that one. So we know by, by then there is a Brockhampton. It exists. So sometime between 1166 and 1283, you're almost looking at 100 years or so there, Brockhampton appears. But all we know of Brockhampton itself is it's got a chapel by that date. But then we can go into the bishop's, uh, bishop's register and it's great. It gives us an idea of all the clergy that were coming to the site um, uh, at, the, at the chapel. So starting at 1308, bringing us all the way down to 1402. Great stuff. The only problem is, is after that date, there's a complete gap between 1402 and 1780. So either the um, chapel's totally abandoned or it's changing its use. And that might be the whole, I mentioned earlier, the Dumbleton family taking over and the chapel potentially becoming um, privately owned. And that may, may be the indicator of that. It's not quite as simple as that, but, um, when we look at that detail there, obviously the chapel is in use. We have no evidence of a village at Brockhampton itself. Um, so where's the population coming from? Well, there we go, the red dot in the middle, there's Brockhampton. And these other sites around, you've got four farms there, which can be traced back into the, um, well, Going to say medieval but early medieval in origins and we have the yellow dot here this is a place called the hide or which then became known as the the hill and it's kind of a small hamlet and when it was known as the hill it was then taken over as the site as the modern manor and chapel site at the top of the hill so basically that became the focus rather than that by 1780. And then you've got this purple dot out here. And this, is the pur this, this purple dot is the one we excavated whilst I was working with Herefordshire Council's Archaeology Service uh, involving Herefordshire Mind back in 2011. And went in there, um, recorded on the local historic environment record as a, a deserted medieval settlement, um, excavated away, and nothing kind of post-dated except a few cottages, the um, uh, 1400s, which is kind of cool because it drags us into this place kind of shrinking in size by the time the Dumbleton family take over.
and kind of leading on to the chapel becoming private. So there we go, what have we got there? Post 1402, so I mentioned this, the chapel hasn't got any regular um, visitors from the church. However, there are changes, there are oh, changes, there are exceptions. So we have between uh, 1550 and 1619, we've got 12 baptisms and four marriages, but they're all by special license. So you've got a private chapel and all this stuff coming on, presumably, all by special license. And the interesting thing is not a single burial is recorded between these dates at that site. Um, there's no burials recorded there at all, in fact. The burials, when they are recorded, it mentions, uh, I don't know, John of Brockhampton buried at Aikenbury. John of Bra Brockhampton buried at Bromyard. You know, so everybody of the Brockhampton area, if they were to pass away in that area, they were buried in neighbouring parish um, churches rather than around the chapel at Brockhampton, which raises the question whether the chapel was in fact and always was a sort of chapel of ease, just because it's out in the middle of nowhere, stacked out, it's right at the bottom of a valley. I should have talked about the geographic location earlier, but oh well. Um, but it's at the bottom of a valley um, and you've got a scattered community living around it. And Bromyard and the local churches, they're all, you know, a good two, three mile walk away. So if you've got your chapel there, it's just that hub that people can come to and do their thing. There's a, a, another thing in here, you've probably all read that already, but um, in that it seems interesting that the chapel would become private by the 1400s and it kind of look at the records of population sizes in the area and uh, Catherine Lack, a historian of local historian of the areas, looked at the available uh, poll tax records and such to gauge the kind of size of the population that was living around Bromyard Foreign. Now Bromyard Foreign is just the area around Bromyard itself, so it includes Brockhampton. And you got there that it's kind of estimated that you know, 1285, you got a population of around about 670. And then by 1377, it's dropped right down to 170. You know, so there's a massive crash in population as well, which may kind of indicate why the chapel became private, just because there were no people there to, to really go along. And of course, from the archaeological evidence from Studmarsh, which is that purple dot on the map, that that population clearly crashed and there's a lot of abandonment going on by about 1400. So it all kind of ties together whether all the catastrophes of the, the 14th century, the plague, the poor climate, all those sort of things just had that effect on just driving the, the population down, chapel becoming private, all that stuff. And when you look at the historic maps, uh, which we did do, um, <laughs> Um, the 1737 map just showed that kind of brown splodge with the green moat going around it. It didn't show any ponds or anything else around the area. But if you were to look at that map as a whole, it records ponds everywhere else. It's not because they've just been emitted. It's just, you know, it's just that they're not recorded around that area. And you don't see them recorded there until that 1829 
um, survey, which was the, the, the later one you saw, where it showed that potential duck pond and that pond. And so where they, whereas they've always been kind of interpreted in the past as being these medieval features relating to the, the early house and village and all that, we kind of, kind of, unless we I don't know, get lucky excavating it one day, um, yeah, we can't really confirm that. So the next phase was, right, survey, geophysics. I would say that before this, we did do a dowsing survey where the uh, British Society of Dowsers uh, came in. Oh, they're a great bunch. Because it was, yeah, it's the one with the, the sticks. That, and it was a little bit of kind of friendly competition going on in regards to identifying features using the dowsing rods and using the the resistivity survey in this case. So this area here, that's the chapel there. There's your corner of the moat. The house is down here. And we went across this area, basically. Uh, this followed up the dowsing survey. So they were picking features up, marking it down, and we put it on a plan. That was great. And we thought, follow it up with the geophysics. And, you know, you might be a skeptic and all that like me um, but they did kind of cross over at places where we were picking anomalies up with the geophysics stuff i don't know how it works witchcraft i say burn them <laughs> but um <laughs> but um but we got our got, got our plan here and um you can see some anomalies on there i hope you know these dark smudges in here that almost looks like a corner of something you got these real high levels of resistance. That's meaning there's something really solid just beneath the ground surface. Um, the green bits is where there's less solid stuff. There's more water, moisture in the soil. And that's the same for the whiter bits in there. So the things that really caught our eye was this kind of band running along here. Obviously, these things that look like they're on fire. Um, you know, there's something underground there, something solid. And this funny feature, funny feature here, you know, is it potentially representing, you know, if you've got a eye of faith, draw a right angle in there, is that representing the foundations to a wall? You know, have we got a building in there? Are these the collapsed remains of older buildings? Or is it just because the geology is closer to the surface that we're picking it all up? all them sort of things you've got to think about. So geophysics is great at identifying anomalies, but it can't tell you what it is until you start digging it up. And we also um, were lucky enough, because we had loads of money, of course, National Trust and things, we got um, Stratascan um, in to carry out a magnetometry survey of the entire kind of area of interest. Because what what the National Trust want to do is reinstate an orchard through all this land here. Our chapel is kind of a little speck down here, and there's our house with the moat going around it. So just to give you an idea of the scale there, it's a big old area. But uh, the magnetometry, you know, it didn't actually show us an awful lot. It showed us ridge and furrow in these sort of areas, which you can kind of see from the ground anyway. So it's... And then all these lovely blue dots in here are the individual trees within the orchard there with the nice wire mesh around them you know yes great 
Uh, same goes for that. That's, that there looks great, but it's just a fence line. And around the chapel itself, didn't really show us um, an awful lot. So unfortunately, we couldn't really rely on the, the magnetometry to guide our excavations. And there was this big thing about the graves, you know, 50 odd graves. Yes, in the uh, documentary evidence, we can't really find it. We can't, we don't seem to be able to prove that there's any graves there, but we thought, well, we'll get some ground penetrating radar in as well and try and, you know, confirm it that way or the other and also see if there's any buildings out there. So from one, two, three, and four, but number one, it's closest to the surface. Number four, it's about a meter, I can't read it, meter, um, meter 20 down or so. And it's going through, giving you slices of what's there at each depth. So you can see at the number one there, top left-hand corner, I should point out, uh, just to orientate you. There again, there's the moat, the house, that's the chapel. Um, so you've got something going on in that area, something solid. It does pick up, it doesn't show great. Oh, it shows better on this one. It does pick up the, the pathway into, or the trackway into the chapel on there. A few drains coming out of the side of the, the manor house, but nothing there that would indicate any cuts, any features that would suggest graves at the site as well. So, okay, test excavation. That's about excavation, right? Look at that. So we had, in total, we did about 14, 14 trenches, something like that. The numbers don't match up there because we had a further few planned for elsewhere, which we couldn't do in the end. And these excavations were all set in place to test features either identified as anomalies through the resistivity survey. We had a, a couple here in the orchard. Um, they were located in areas, uh, that one located as a result of the, the dowsing survey to, to test what they had. This one there to, um, well, it's smack bang on the middle of a platform that we can all you know, see and love and all that sort of stuff. And basically try to work out what on earth is going on. So these were testing those funny anomalies around um, the chapel. So on the resistivity survey, I mentioned that dark band that kind of curved over. Uh, the bits that were on fire, that's them ones. And that one there is that kind of possible right angle dark feature there. And one against the back wall of the chapel as well, because there appeared to be a construction break in the wall there. And it was a case of working out whether there was an earlier entrance into the chapel or get down to the foundations of the chapel and try to find out some phasing and all that sort of stuff. A few around the house as well. As I mentioned, the existing house was built by, you know, the, the Dumbletons in 12, no, not 12, no, 1420s, something like that. But if you've got a chapel here, post 1166, then potentially you've got an earlier hall here as well, accompanying it where the, the Lord of the Manor uh, was, was living. So a few trenches against the walls to have a look at their foundations, see whether anything looks a bit earlier. Um, and one in the garden to see, you know, just nice in it. What were they growing? That sort of thing. Same for that one. So there we go. Eight trenches were excavated to look at those anomalies. So there's our map again. And here we go, excavating away. 
and it wasn't very exciting at all. We didn't have a nice right-angled uh, building. We didn't have um, collapsed rubble, you know, building remains, no graves, not a single bone, no, nothing like that. Instead, we got the one next to the, the bit that looked like it was on fire next to the chapel. That's this one here. And the reason it looked like it was on fire is because it was full of hard standing uh, where <laughs> presumably someone in the early 1930s or so put some hard standing down. It was only later on that the farmer came along and went, yeah, yeah, we had a uh, caravan there for a while. And I was like, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> you know, so there we go. The one in the orchard, uh, number 10, so that was the top left-hand one off that plan. Uh, that was that platform. We excavated down and found post-medieval just landscaping material, loads of it. Not even post-medieval, actually. Uh, <laughs> a layer of that because there's plastic in there as well. Um, and so we went all the way down to a depth of about there. Then we have a buried soil, which is lovely. But of course, that buried soil is from 19... 40 something um, and then a nice land drain through the middle of it so that platform in that orchard is there for some hard standing just get your carts off the boggy ground something like that and then we put one of course over that kind of curved feature and the reason it was showing up as an anomaly as a big band it was again it's this um, 1900s late 1800s landscaping where they basically come out the back of the chapel and when, whenever they've done any work on the house, the farms got bigger around the area, all the waste they've produced, they've just kind of chucked it out the back and just leveled it up. So that big band was just a big band of clay curving around nicely to make us all think, oh, have we got an earlier enclosure to the chapel? Uh, so there we go. <laughs> so the, uh, yeah, there we go. Anomalies, eh, what can you do? And so we looked at the garden, and I should have pointed this out on the earlier map. On the 1829 map, uh, I hope you noticed there was kind of like where the fish pond was. There was sort of a boundary curving off and curving in towards the, the moat. Now, it's that sort of boundary, and when you stand there on the ground, quite a distinct hollow, this is that feature that had been interpreted as representing an earlier moat. But on the 1829 map, it's quite clearly demarcating an area of garden. And so it's curving around here. And so we thought, right, well, the one way to get to grips with this is put a trench across the, the whole, whole uh, width of that. So here we go, nice long trench. So we're stood at the top here, round about there, looking down towards the fence line. So there. And the aim of this was to first of all, characterise what that depression's all about, what that hollow was about, and also to um, look at and sample any sort of potential garden soils, anything that might be of interest on a, an environmental side of life, because of course, if we can identify a garden soil, sample it, look at the remains, then we can identify, well, what were they growing there? What, you know, what potentially were they eating? All these sort of things. There you go, lovely cross-section of that trench there. So there's our ditch down here. The fence kind of was here, so it prevented us getting the, uh, the return. And the moat is 
on that far end. And you can see the location of our core samples by these up here. Okay, so excavating through it all, um, going through the ditch, looking at this area here, right at the bottom, kind of almost like a revetment against the garden soils itself, we have this lovely um, drain. It doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't really show up there, but you can see it on that one there. You've got a nice, nice drain there. And it's sealed by 15th century um, ceramics. The, the stuff that's kind of filling in over the top of it, it's all 15th century material, which is fantastic because that starts to bring us into the, again, John Hambleton and his works on the chapel and the house. So he built the existing house. So presumably he was also getting this thing dug out at that time as well. And it links in with the moat. So if it's linking in with the moat, presumably the moat is dug around about the same time. And this is in fact acting as its overflow channel. So as the moat was becoming too full, the water was being redirected through this ditch. And this kind of drain is acting to just control the flow of that water out and direct it away from, well, any crops or anything you might have growing around the area, which is, you know, great. So it's certainly not an earlier moat, that's for sure. Uh, which I was quite pleased because it, it proved my... Um, my old boss wrong so it's a <laughs> but then as we kind of like started to dig around it became hmm, a little bit more interesting so we've got our 15th century 16th century drainage channel in here fantastic but as we're digging down particularly on the top end there we found this layer 006 and it was chock full of about, well, in fact, it was full of, there were 53 sherds of this sort of pottery in there. There were no other pottery, no other ceramics coming out. And it's been identified as dating between um, 1200 and, well, 1250 as a B1 Mulvernian fabric ware. Uh, so it's a locally produced material using stones kind of associated with the, the Malvern Hills. And it's kind of, well, quite exciting. You know, it's, in essence, it's a it's a, a preserved in situ plough soil, and so what we did was put these um, monoliths in here, uh, extract extract the soils uh, for sampling, looking for pollen, um, and sent them to well, Emily Foster there of Sheffield to kind of uh, help I you know identify any um, any pollen. In, within that, uh, that soil horizon, because of course if you can identify that, you know, have an idea of what's growing in the area and all that sort of stuff. Unfortunately, because of the conditions and being Herefordshire rich clays, very waterlogged, wet sort of stuff, they didn't preserve very well. Um, um, but we did get some charred um, grains from there as well, charred plant remains of um, oats and free fresh in wheat. So we can say that that was being grown or at least imported in the area. Um, so it gives us an idea of well, the stuff that they were of course eating in the medieval period. And then down at the bottom area, as we started to dig through, cause oh, trying to get to grips with, well, 
there's our ditch is there anything underneath it as we went down and again it doesn't quite show but perhaps the the this faint line here is the best coming up there and there's an orange one in there they're plow marks so we can say that prior to the 15th century the area was under plow we've got the plow mark uh, we've got the plow soil up there we've got the plow marks here we can say it's you know it's all yeah all under cultivation which is great and then we come to our chapel and the trench out the back of the chapel so there it is a kind of vertical view i had fun photographing that hanging off the top of the wall and the aim of this again to expose the foundations of the chapel work out if there's a numerous phases in its construction we kind of looked at the wall itself and it did sort of look like there was a construction break and we kind of pondered the idea of there being um, an earlier entrance way and of course if there was an earlier entrance way then you'd have to have an approach up to it which was the idea of this trench so you would pick up that approach however it might be we didn't of course find an earlier entrance way or an approach or anything like that we found a trench that i found whoa i was sat in front of it for days on end scratching my head um because it was it was horrible actually however we got to the foundations right the way down here and right from the very bottom we found a single shirt as you do of that 1200s to 1250s pottery which is great because we can then get an idea as well that that chapel must have been there by that day but what was great about this was the information we got in regards to the redevelopment or uh, redevelopment of the chapel by the time that the Dumbleton family took over the estate in the uh, 1400s, uh, late 1300s, sorry. Um, but they did the work on the chapel, adding in a lot of the, the current windows that are there and the current uh, entranceway. And whilst we were excavating within this kind of horizon here, going along, so this sort of bit along, we were finding um, green glazed roof tiles, both flat ones and ridge top ones of the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, if they weren't, if the roof wasn't made up of the green glazed stuff, it was made up of flat stones. So presumably the lower courses were like flat stones and the upper courses were um, the green glazed um, ceramic stuff, make it really stand out. But also us digging our way through within these horizons was a lot of um, plaster. Uh, whitewash kind of rendering stuff so we can say that at that date when he was working on it he was producing or can, yeah, doing up the chapel blinging it up putting a nice roof on it but also whitewashing the walls on a an external front as well so it would have been quite a, a feature stood within the landscape it would be yeah very nice and there's one of the ridge top tiles there bit of one so with the, the spike on the top and there's the rest of them down there nice locally produced green glazed stuff um, one of the other things that came out of it the excavation as well and of course exposing the foundations is that um, initially we believe the chapel would have had its stone foundations up to this point but the top part there was probably exposed so it wasn't all underground uh, this has since kind of built up. Well, the initial chapel would have been something like timber frame, wattle and daub, all that sort of stuff. And so it's sometime between, you know, presumably 1283 and 
1425 that the, the chapel had already been constructed in one phase out of stone. Um, and the one phase is evident because all the way around the chapel we have putlock holes going all the way around, which you know, suggests one phase of construction all the way through. And then, of course, we had our trenches around the house there, looking at the foundations. And unfortunately, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't prove that there was an earlier building there. We didn't get any earlier material from around the, the house itself. What we did get, though, was, again, evidence of these nice green glazed roof tiles, a bit of plaster, stuff like that. So presumably or possibly when the Hambletons were renovating the chapel, they were also looking at the house and when they were building that, they were all going for the kind of matching set look of nice green glazed roofs, whitewashed walls, all that sort of thing. So this is kind of like a drawn out summary right now. So um, going, going through with maps. Um, so we've got our 12th to 13th century Lower Brockhampton. Our earliest evidence from what we can say is by during the 12th century, by the end of the 13th century, so by 1283 from that record, we know there was a chapel there. So the chapel's nicely highlighted. And we know that there must have been some domestic activity within the area from the 1200s to 1250s uh, B1 Mulvernian ware fabric that was identified across the site. So we've got our 53 sherds within our nice long trench that was over here within that plough soil. Uh, there was one sherd out to one, the, one side of the house and a few, uh, one at the foot of the chapel, convenient, and uh, <laughs> one, one elsewhere too. So we know there was something going on um, presumably there was a, some sort of manor house hall for the Lord there. Uh, we just haven't found it. And then we come to the phase where the Hambletons moved in and we know that they built that thing there. So we know that's there at that date in 1423, uh, 25. And then we go into the next, next uh, phase where you have the appearance of the gatehouse. That's 1630s when, uh, 1630s, sorry, 1520s when the, the estate was owned by the Ham Habington family. Um, and it's presumably between these two features being constructed that, well, definitely the gatehouse over a moat, you know, presumably the moat had to be there first. Um, so <laughs> you've, you've, got the, you've got the moat being put in there. And with that, you have our overcourse channel, which was picked up in that trench nine at the very bottom there. And that's running off down and filtering off into a natural spring line at the bottom here. And this is where we can kind of throw in a little bit more information in that we have our 1737 estate map to rely on, give us an idea of how the ground around was being used. So for us, I mean, what was, what was that? Oh, it was just all under pasture according to that map. But, you know, it's a little bit of added information, confirmed something in 1737. But we also have in this phase the house being taken over by the Barnaby family in 1657. And at the time that they took over the house, those are the farms across the, uh, the estate that were pointed out on the earlier map were, you know, far grander, bigger and better than this. 
And the Barnabies are supposed to be the, you know, the lords over them, looking at them going, this ain't right, you know. And so it's, it's, it's them, by 1700, they extended the house. They added this bit out the back, uh, new and improved kitchen, double stories, extra rooms. They added the, the chimneys, all that sort of stuff. And then they presumably added the fish pond as well by that date. There's a lot of presumably's in here. It's got to love it. Uh, and uh, going off the history, but this is, we only presume that. I mean, we didn't get a chance to investigate it properly, but from the historic mapping available, that and that weren't on the 1737 map. They're on the 1829 map. So that's why we're saying, well, because the 1737 map records every other pond on the estate, we can't really say these are, you know, these were just omitted. It just doesn't make sense. And so you got, yeah, 18th, 19th century, our, our, our last phase of this being kind of like the seat of power for the, for the estate of Brockhampton. The, the Barnaby family, 1765, commissioned the, the building of a new house up on the hillside, along with a new chapel and that was to be the, the new site of their seat of power forevermore. Um, and these undoubtedly went in before. Well, they, of course they did because they were on the 1829 map. But they probably put these in and then decided to move on from there. Yeah, well, basically, yeah, that's kind of what we got out of the project at the end is a more factual, I think, approach to the history of the estate. I mean, there were things going on in the history there about the person that built Hampton Court made the bricks for the house at Brockhampton, and that's where he learned his trade. You know, there were things like that where we all kind of had to kind of, whoa, wind that back in. But um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. Anyway, there we go. <laughs> Please check out our show notes for more information about our podcast and the guest speaker. We have links to the Archaeology and Ale website, which has information on upcoming talks. You're very welcome to come along if you're in Sheffield. We also provide links to the podcast episodes hosted by the Archaeology Podcast Network. And I've got some links to the blog for the Summer of Archaeology and information on Brockhampton Estate. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next month. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.